I'm Jake Watson, and this is the Saints Unscripted podcast, where we have conversations about faith crisis, topics that may be triggering about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the Gospel, church history, prophets, the Book of Mormon and the Bible, and so many other things. This is Season 1, Faith Crisis. Whatever else, right? Uh, Whatever disillusionment I feel, whatever uh, disconnect, whatever pain, suffering, your answer, my answer is Jesus Christ. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He's the light of the world, the bread of life. We have Stephen Harper here. Uh, thanks for coming on, Stephen. You bet, Jake. Good to be with you. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've been uh, looking forward to this actually since the very start of this podcast. It's been, gosh, we're we're filming right now in May, and we started the podcast somewhere around uh, I think October, late October. But we'd done some planning in September and and then in August before that as well. And I I really wanted to have you on because it felt like. This one of the big things that started this kind of faith adventure for me was church leaders. And I was having a hard time having charity for them a little bit, or maybe just understanding that they were imperfect or that they could be imperfect or that, I don't know, it, it was, it was kind of a hard thing. And, and so I've been just waiting for you to come on and I'm grateful for you to come on. So Stephen is a church historian. He's an author of several books. Uh, I was actually just, uh, I just downloaded his book, Making Sense of the Doctrine and Covenants. And also you've done a lot of interviews on YouTube about various topics, but your main, so what would you say your main focus is? I study the revelations of Joseph Smith, uh, the Lord's revelations to Joseph Smith, starting with the first vision and uh, the ones that are in the Doctrine and Covenants and some that aren't in the Doctrine and Covenants as well. So. Oh, that's And I do remember some books that you have written about Joseph Smith's first vision. And I think I, maybe you've written a few, but I know I've seen some at Deseret Book. Yeah. So, Stephen, you're, you're, you're here to talk about – I gave you a few questions, so maybe we can just say that it fits – this conversation will fit really well with the faith crisis season. And so kind of the, the first question that I have that we can talk about is when – when I, or maybe perhaps with others, when we find out troubling church history that mm-hmm. kind of really freaks us out, and and there's probably plenty out there, <laughs> um, why why did why why would someone like me or others seem to start to question their faith when yeah. when you find out these things? That's an excellent question. Uh, I don't know all the answers to it. I've been wondering this question myself for a long, long time. had an experience when I was 14 that um, was formative for me, where I first, that was my first experience coming into uh, knowledge of facts that I hadn't heard before. And having that experience where you feel uh, disoriented or uh, jarred, and and then responding to that in you know with um, various emotions or thoughts or whatever. So 
I think probably ever since then I've been thinking about this question in one form or another and um, know now a lot more people who've had their own experiences, uh, certainly my own lifetime of uh, thinking about faith or the lack thereof. Um, so uh, I, I think that part of what is um, happening here is that there's so much at stake, right? Let's say we found out that, um, I don't know, you know, I found out uh, that the Oakland A's might move from Oakland. Okay, I don't care, right? Well, let's say I found out that Joseph Smith's first vision might not have really happened. Okay, I care, right? Uh, there's so much at stake for a Latter-day Saint. So that might be part of the answer. Uh, when we find out something that seems to collide with our faith, there's a lot at stake in that. And so it's a cause of great concern. It's something to worry about, something to think about, and try to, try to come to some terms with. So I guess the beginning of an answer is, there's an enormous amount at stake. You've heard the saying, it's not a matter of life and death, it's more important than that. Well, <laughs> the restored gospel, right? It's not a matter of life and death, it's more important than that. So whether it's true or not is vital and uh, causes us a, a lot of concern. I think of when I first, we were talking before and I remember telling you just this past summer was when I thought the plane was going down and and sometimes I like to I liked to, it's a good visualize way to put it. that. I know. There's a lot at stake when the plane starts <laughs> yeah. going down. Yeah, Mayday. I could have called Mayday. See, well, maybe I did already, but like I felt like and I, I've talked to some people and they've started to help me understand maybe what's going on. Uh, Leo Weiniger came on and he talked a little bit about it. Love Leo. Where, oh, it was so amazing. <laughs> and he was the first guest. And so it was really cool to get kind of a good foundation and a base on that. But he talked about that faith crisis isn't just something that you, you're having trouble with your faith or th that it seems so simple because it's, at least being a Latter-day Saint, it's so embedded in identity. Yeah. And I mean and family life and family relationships, relationships in general, a relationship with my wife. I got married to her in the temple. Yeah. And if I'm starting to quit, I mean. Everything ooh, is at stake. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I'm just right now feeling the gravity of that a little bit. <laughs> like, wow, okay, you're right. I feel like asking that question at first I thought, oh, there's a disconnect there. Like, oh, it, you know, having trouble with church history and church leaders or, or policies, doctrine, whatever, and faith, they should be separate. But the way you just described it is like, no, no, no. It's like, yeah, it has a lot at stake. I love the way you put that. Oh, I love that answer. Thank you. So I've heard you talk about having charity for church leaders or mm -hmm. church history. So if I'm first off struggling with some church history stuff or church leader stuff. So how, how can I, how can I, well, what does charity look like? What does that look yeah, like? This is a great question. Um, Joseph Smith taught something really profound to the Relief Society sisters in uh, 1842. He said, the closer we get to our heavenly father, the more we want to take perishing souls, right? Anybody with any kind of weakness. 
and cast them on our shoulders and carry them and throw their sins behind our backs. And then he said, if you want God to have mercy on you, have mercy on one another. And I think it's uh, relatively easy maybe for us to have mercy on uh, the exploited, the downtrod, the oppressed, the, you know, the, the people in history or in the scriptures that um, maybe that Christ has mercy towards. They're sort of natural objects of our, of our compassion. But what about Brigham Young, right? What about Joseph F. Smith or Joseph F. Smith? Um, are they worthy of my compassion, of my charity, right? What do I do? I have a choice to make when I learn something, right? I, I learn a fact, and that fact doesn't act for itself. It's not animate. It doesn't make me do anything. I choose what to do with it. So let's say I learn that Brigham Young said what we would think of as some ugly racist stuff, okay? I could decide he didn't really say it. Somebody's, uh, some sinister person is trying to undermine a prophet. I could decide, well, he said it, but it was a whole different world he lived in, and it was, it was more okay then than it is now. Or I could decide that's unacceptable, and uh, he, he I, you know, I can't tolerate that. I can't be a follower of Brigham Young. Or I could decide, right, do you get the idea? I can decide anything I want about that fact or set of facts. It doesn't uh, force me to one conclusion or another. So what I am advocating is charity. Why not respond with charity? Now, charity doesn't mean that I excuse wrongdoing. It doesn't mean that I... Um, veil over something or gloss over it. It doesn't mean that I'm not hurt by it, um, but it does mean that I choose to act, and I'm saying this in an ideal way, right? I'm not particularly good at this. I just know it's the right thing to do. <laughs> uh, it's always the right thing to do to choose charity, the pure love of Christ. It's always the right response. And so I'm, what I'm inviting myself and others to do is when you learn truths about church history, about church leaders, about your bishop, about your spouse, um, that you choose charity. I'm not advocating that we choose to make ourselves vulnerable to, to injury or uh, being hurt or being uh, exploited. I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm not saying we um, don't feel anger, frustration, um, whatever. But I am saying that in all of that, we have a choice. We get to choose. And I can choose to say, I wish Brigham Young had not said some things he said. They're hurtful. Uh, to many people, they're extremely hurtful. But I decide that I'm going to treat Brigham Young with the charity that I hope I get treated with. I've said hurtful things to people. I've wounded people. I've been a fool. I hope 
that God will have mercy on me, and I therefore am going to choose to try to have mercy on Brigham Young. Now, some people might say, well, he's a prophet. He's not, he's not, you know, he's not an object of, of mercy. Who is, right? If it's mercy, if, if it's warranted, if it's merited, it's not mercy. Uh, there's nothing that I can find anywhere in the scriptures or, or in sound philosophy or reason that says just because someone is called of God as his servant that they're somehow exempt from God's mercy. We could think of a dozen examples pretty easily of people like Joseph Smith, who the first thing they wanted was God's mercy. There was no one else to whom I could go for mercy, Joseph says, right, in his earliest autobiography. So I cried unto the Lord for mercy. Well, they're, in other words, they're like us. Brigham Young is like us. Um, Joseph Smith's like us. And I want the Savior's mercy, and I want to feel his compassion. And so the, the, the way to respond when I find out that my leaders have been less than what I imagined ideally that they might be is to choose charity. It, it I promise you this, it diminishes that mean, nasty, feeling that wells up inside of us when we when we learn these things when we are offended when we're hurt all right it brings that back down to a manageable level and helps us to respond to the situation much more wisely rationally calmly with more peace of heart more peace of mind right there are a lot of people who are pissed off <laughs> at Brigham Young and we might say, well, rightly so or justifiably so, but what what value is there in that, right? It's uh, perfectly valuable and fine to learn the facts and then to choose to respond to them with charity. That's, that's what I'm advocating. So you said something uh, about trying to have charity but feeling vulnerable or feeling, you know, even more so feeling exploited or, and that kind of made me think of a question like when, when I see people and also Stephen is, is one of the chief editors for the saints books trying oh, to was, yeah, for oh, six was. years I was. Oh, wow. For yeah. six years. Okay, cool. So he was for saints volume one and two, right? Yeah. I worked on all four of them. Um, and oh, when, there's four. Yeah. There'll be four. Uh, <laughs> awesome. And, when one uh, came out, that was about the time that I went back to BYU. Oh, okay, cool. And I, I thought those were awesome. Thank Just you. reading and, and that scene, yeah, amazing. Like I remember, I remember not even being able to stop reading one one Sunday. That's what in we church. were hoping for. Like even during church, like during the sacrament and during the talks, I, was, I just kept reading. It was, it's fascinating. That's when I first found out Joseph looking into the hat uh -huh. with the seer stone. And that didn't bother me too much. I feel like it bothered some people because yeah. it seemed... Like not, they weren't never told that. And I, I don't feel like I was ever told that either, but either way, I think that's an awesome example of Stephen's work, trying to tell the story, tell everything, not try to hide or lie or deceive. Not that it's ever been that way, but the saints books are amazing. And so that kind of goes along with the question with, okay, 
if I, I hear a lot of people who leave the church or disassociate or choose to withdraw their membership and not be a part of the church at all, I hear the line or the words, I've been lied to, I've been deceived. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Why that is I, maybe? I think, I think it's the case that some people may have been lied to and some people may have been deceived, but I think it's overwhelmingly the case that people have had expectations that are not met, right? So I sometimes will invite my students to, who can relate to this issue, right? Some of them feel exactly what you're describing. And I talk to them about how um, church history and doctrine is like any other subject. It gets more complex the more you study it. And they, they realized that. And none of them were shocked when the multiplication they learned in third grade got more complicated and, and you know, they got to algebra and some of them are in calculus. And they expected that. They expected that as they advanced along, they were going to learn more complex topics and that what they learned when they got the addition and subtraction down is not all there was to know. But for some reason, for some reason that I would really like to understand, there are quite a few Latter-day Saints who think they know, and they, they project the responsibility for knowing on them or the church, whatever that is. And the church is supposed to make sure that they, have, they know everything by some sort of threshold, right? I'm, I graduated seminary, my seminary teachers and the church are responsible to have make, ensured that I now know everything. Well, they don't think that about their mathematics, their science, their art, their literature. Right? We go on to more years of school knowing that there's more for us to learn about every subject there is except for some reason the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, the restored gospel of Jesus Christ in that way is like every other subject. You can study it for a lifetime, and it gets more complex. It gets deeper. There's more to know. There are more facts to learn. There are more interpretations of the facts to learn. Um, and so, for some reason, there's an assumption that some people have that it shouldn't be that way, that if the learning of my religion is like the learning of every other subject I've ever learned or studied, there's something amiss. Well, there's not something amiss, right? The feeling of betrayal or being lied to sometimes comes because we've been betrayed or lied to. But in my experience, it's much more frequent that it's a assumption based on expectations that are invalid, right? Why would I expect or assume that the restored gospel is not going to get more complicated, not uh, going to be like any other subject. It is. The more I study it, the more challenging it's going to be. Um, I'm not uh, saying it's not true, right? Uh, the more I study chemistry, the more challenging it's going to be. It's true, way more complex. And that, that gives me a sense of feeling bewildered, right? This chemistry does this to me. I just... It's not very long before I, I can't keep up with it and keep track of it. Some people experience the restored gospel that way, and they, 
you know, mind blown sort of a thing. I, I hope that's uh, at least part of an answer. I know the question is more complicated and I know that every individual case is different, but that's something for people to think about. Why do you assume or expect that the restored gospel is going to stay simple when everything else gets more complicated the more you study it? That is a great, oh, I'm going to be thinking about that for the next long while. Great. <laughs> I, I, a thought came up to my head when you said, well, we're not shocked when math gets harder. And uh, maybe I'd use a different word. I was discouraged. <laughs> I, and, and I thought, oh, well, and I thought of a funny question. Why didn't my kindergarten teacher teach me the quadratic equations or all of the algebra and calculus? And wow, you're, that's you're so onto something important there, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. You know, we, we get to be uh, 20 years old and we think, well, why didn't they teach me that? Why didn't they teach me that in seminar? I, I asked my dad that when I was 14 years old, I was looking at the church news on the kitchen table. It was May right? This time of year, 1985, and the church news published a letter that said it was from Joseph Smith to Josiah Stoll about how to find the right kind of a hazel wood branch and how to cleave it just the right way and lay it just the right way to find buried treasure. And I thought, what? Right? And my question was, Dad, why don't they teach me that at church, right? The they, this, this some, somebody called they, and the church. What, what do you think would have happened if my CTR teacher had said, now kids, <laughs> first of all, the letter was a forgery, as we all learned later that year, right? It was not Joseph at all. Uh, nobody knew that at the time. And we do have these unrealistic expectations that if they had taught me that, I would have been paying attention and that I would have even been ready, right? If they had taught me the quadratic equation in third or fourth or fifth grade, or even college for me, <laughs> I would not have been able to process that. So line on line, precept on precept. And as long as we don't get this mistaken idea in our head that the church, whatever that is, is somehow able to or responsible to teach me everything there is to know by a certain time of my life, we won't be we, we won't be near as vulnerable to that feeling of being lied to or betrayed, right? Who is supposed to teach us this stuff? Who is who's got the obligation to teach me about the Sunday school teacher right. down the road? It's all his fault, right? Who, who has no idea? <laughs> who doesn't? Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and uh, yeah, I mean, who's supposed to teach me the uh, documentary hypothesis about the Old Testament? Who's supposed to teach me about plural marriage? Who's supposed to Right. I, in other words, I want people to, um, I want myself and everyone else to say, I'm responsible to learn the restored gospel. And this happened for me, uh, really beginning at that, with that 14 year old experience, but especially when I, um, got on my mission and then got home, I thought, I'm going to take classes, but I'm going to devour the restored gospel. I'm not going to depend on anyone else. And since then, I've been studying the primary sources myself. I don't, I don't want anyone else to mediate for me. I want to put my own hands on the sources of knowledge, and I want to evaluate them for myself. 
And I, I would like everybody to kind of get that attitude. Like nobody's obligated to uh, tell me the stuff. Well, I sit passively by and, and uh, wait to, to be betrayed or lied to. I'm going to learn the gospel. I'm going to uh, seek by study and by faith, right? The, the gospel commands me to do these things. Uh, so the idea that we should, that you know, we're dependent on someone else, uh, let's get over that. Let's quit blaming them or the church. The church, whatever mistakes it has made, whatever that means, has done the best it could. You've done the best you could. I've done the best I could. Let's grant that people pretty much do the best they can. And let's stop blaming somebody for betraying us or lying to us. Not, I don't want to overstate. Some people have been betrayed by a spouse, by a bishop. I don't want to minimize that. That's real. But for the most part, those of us who feel like, you know, when I asked my dad, why don't they teach me that at church? That was me being um, irresponsible and unreasonable. Who in the world was there that was supposed to teach me that or didn't know those things. It's my job. This is one of the first principles of come follow me. It's my job to be responsible for my own learning of the gospel. And I'll be a lot less prone to be being disrupted by feelings of betrayal if I won't assume that, that there's somebody that's supposed to teach me these things. If I'll assume that I'm on a lifelong trajectory of learning more all the time, just like I am with math or art or whatever other subject. I, I just keep thinking, <laughs> if, if I would have known about math would be like that, I wouldn't have wasted my whole life learning math. And so, and, and, and I wish someone would have, I wish I would have known that. And okay, here I go again. Yeah. I wish someone would have told me. Sure. To seek for myself, to to yeah, and I I don't fault fault us for that, right? <laughs> I did the same thing, and I I've done it over and over, and I so I'm not trying to um, be hypercritical right. of us when we do that, but it will help us if we'll get out of that pattern of of feeling like we're dependent on them, and say I'm responsible for my own learning of the gospel. Okay, well, for here on out. Future Jacob, who's editing this, make sure you hear this because <laughs> this is this is what I've got to be doing. I I love that. Thank you. So, I, I heard you say once that the facts about Joseph Smith about the gospel don't compel someone to believe necessarily, mm -hmm. but they don't refute it. Yeah. And I really loved. I, I think you said that on another episode of Saints Unscripted, and I don't know if you remember exactly that. So sorry if I'm throwing you a. It sounds a better when ball. you say it than whatever I say. <laughs> oh, I highly <laughs> doubt that. But can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So um, a, an observation will show that knowing the facts about church history is not the determinant of whether you believe in the restored gospel or not. Because I know the facts of church history and there, you know, some of them, I don't know all of them. But I know a lot of them, and other people who I believe the restored gospel, other people who don't believe the restored gospel, they know the same facts I do, right? And we could show really easily that knowing 
evidence is not the same as uh, believing in it or not. In other words, it's, it's not the case that if you just knew the facts of church history, you would be compelled to believe. And it's also not the case that if you knew the facts of church history, you would be compelled to not believe in it. So there's something else at work, right? There's some other determinant in our lives of whether we believe the restored gospel or not. And I, I want everybody to come face to face with that. I want people to stop uh, making the case, well, if you just knew uh, this or that about the Book of Mormon witnesses, you would have to believe the Book of Mormon. And I want them to stop making the opposite case as well. Uh, that's not true. Neither one of those things are true. So what is it? What is it? I've been asking this question ever since I wrote my master's thesis on it. What is the determinant of conversion to the restored gospel or, or set of, of variables, right? What are those things? It's not knowledge of the facts. That's an important part of what goes into it, but that is not the determining factor. What is? What is? Oh. <laughs> you have to have the, the revelations of Joseph Smith give a recipe for, for agency. To be a free agent, somebody who gets to act independently, uh, as Doctrine Covenant Section 93 puts it, independently of God's will for them, that person has to have power, what Doctrine Covenant Section 58 calls power, the ability to act for themselves volition, willfulness, I don't whatever we want to call it, right? Martin Luther talked a lot about this. Um, you've got to have that. And the revelations of Joseph Smith describe this as a God-given gift. And besides that power to act, you have to have knowledge to act upon. You have to know what God wants or doesn't want. And you've got to be opposed to, or that has to be opposed. There has to be an opposition in all things, right? An, an alternative choice besides just God's will. When those things come together, you're a free agent. And uh, those things do come together in people who know the facts, right? If I know the Book of Mormon exists, I get to decide whether I believe that it was translated by the power of God, by Joseph Smith, or whether it was written by Joseph Smith uh, himself. I get to decide that for myself. So agency is the determining factor. Now, I know there's a whole lot more to it than that. I mean, what is it that influences one person to exercise their agency one way and one person another? That's a fascinating uh, investigation that we could spend a wonderful lifetime looking into. But at least uh, one answer to the question is we get to choose for ourselves what we do with the facts. We get to interpret the facts, right? You and I have a glass of water here, uh, each of us sitting in front of us. The glass, is the glass half full or half empty, right? Uh, the proverbial question. Well, we get to decide that. Uh, we, get, we get to choose what some psychologists call our explanatory style. We get to interpret what the facts mean. And I interpret what they mean uh, faithfully in, in ways that affirm the restored gospel. I don't deny that there are some ugly facts, but I choose to look at them in the context of other facts that, um, for me, 
tip the scale in favor of Jesus Christ being the Son of God and the Savior of the world and him choosing Joseph Smith as his servant and giving him power to bring forth the Book of Mormon and to restore the gospel. I choose that interpretation because it is so very satisfying to me. It answers my questions. It solves my problems. It is delicious and desirable. Um, and other people say, look at the same set of facts, and they say, Joseph Smith is too flawed to have been called. And whether Jesus is the sinless Son of God or not, I really don't, you know, I suspect, right? So there are, there are the same facts, the same evidence, and we get to choose whether it is to be interpreted as half full or half empty. And that's a, a very important thing. People need to be responsible for that choice. Don't blame anybody else for it. Don't blame your bishop. Your bishop might be a jerk or he might be the greatest person in the world. That really is not what's at stake. That's not the issue, right? Sacramenting might be boring or it might be great. And that's really not what's at stake. So I, I would uh, encourage people to seize that choice, seize your agency and decide, decide for yourself. And I'm not saying it's a once for all overnight simple uh, thing. It's, a, it's an everyday sort of decide for yourself. Choose this day <laughs> what you're going to do with the restored gospel. That makes me think, I remember when this started out, I, I said, I loved the story of the witnesses. And, and now I'm thinking, I was like, I love the facts. Yes. The witnesses, you know, I mean, 11 men never denying their testimony throughout their entire lives. Some left the church, some, and, and, and I remember just holding on to that fact and being like, wow, that is just, but other people know that fact. Right. And they choose not to believe or mm. choose not to be in the church. And that's opening my eyes because, and you said when, with you yourself, you have all these facts and you choose to look at them and believe them faithfully. Right. That's wow. And every day, oh, every day I got to make that decision. Every oh, day. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. <laughs> we privilege some facts over others, right? All of us do. We pick the facts that mean more to us than other facts. For myself, the fact of the Book of Mormon's existence is, uh, is determinative. That book exists. It has claim. I cannot go a day of my life and pretend that the Book of Mormon does not exist. Now, therefore what, right? What does that fact mean? Where did it come from? And when I dig into that question, I find that there's an original manuscript, or at least about 30% of it still, and it is uh, in Oliver Cowdery's handwriting primarily. And I find that there's a printer's manuscript. It's almost entirely available to us. It's in Oliver Cowdery's handwriting. So are, the, so are the statements of the three and eight witnesses. I find that when I put all the possible evidence together, those manuscripts, that, the original manuscript was produced between the seventh day of April and the last part of June, 1829. And I find that it was written by somebody who was hearing dictation. In other words, the facts start to pile up in a way that for me say, where did this come from? And uh, did Joseph Smith tell me the truth about where it came from or did he lie to me about where it came from? And for me, when all is said, the facts of the Book of Mormon are overwhelming. 
And then for other people, they'll say, really? So when, where are the plates? And do you expect me to believe that angel standing in midair story? Right? So, so people privilege which facts they want to make the most of. And for me, the fact of the Book of Mormon is inescapable. Um, I, it's the one I come back to all the time. You might say to me, well, Brigham Young said some, some ugly racist stuff, and I'll say, I don't doubt that, Book of Mormon, right? Well, uh, plural marriage, isn't that uh, shady and wrong? And I'll say, well, I don't know what to think about plural marriage, but Book of Mormon, you see what I'm saying? And uh, for me, that's how it works. And now, of course, other people will say, well, uh, no evidence whatsoever for the Book of Mormon and uh, a seer stone in a hat and all kinds of stuff. And I'll say, for me, Book of Mormon. And, and it's those manuscripts that exist and, and a pile of evidence from people who watched Joseph translate or scribed while he did so. I can't pretend those facts don't exist. And that's what I mean. Uh, uh, people privilege which facts are most important to them. And for me, the facts of the Book of Mormon are inescapable. I can't talk my way out of the restored gospel because of other problems, later problems or challenges, because to me, the backstop is the Book of Mormon. Inescapable. It is inescapable. That, that's relatable. Me. That's relatable. I remember that that was the same for me luckily i think back a f you know maybe a few years ago i sort of had like a mini mm -hmm. faith uh wrestle or faith right. crisis and it wasn't wasn't huge cuz i was still it, it was it wasn't too bad and but it it was kind of like have i ever received a testimony of the book of mormon and so i feel like out of that little experience that i had where i really grew a strong testimony of the book of mormon now and I just loved when you were saying, well, yeah, polygamy, it's really tough. I don't know how to answer that, but Book of Mormon. And I, and I feel like that's that's super relatable, inescapable. Wow. I love that. Thank you. You bet. So, Stephen, I want to, my, my goal and my aspiration is to stay, is continue having faith mm -hmm. and I, I want to stay with the church and I, and I, you know, I, I'll admit that I do want to stay in the church partly because that's what I know. Sure. I feel like it's my spiritual home. I, um, you know, most of my family are members of the church, but I, I do want to continue having faith and, and try to rebuild or reestablish the faith that I thought I once had. And so when I'm feeling a little bit disconnected with the church, a little bit disconnected with God, uh, disillusioned with the church, a little disillusioned with God. What would what would you say to that? How can I? Question. Oh, you're already, okay. Yeah. So yeah, what would you say to that? Jesus Christ. Whatever else, right? Uh, whatever disillusionment I feel, whatever uh, disconnect, whatever pain, suffering. Your answer, my answer, is Jesus Christ. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He's the light of the world, the bread of life. You know the discourse, right, where, where in the Gospel of John, he feeds the multitude, right? Everybody is well-fed, and, and it's miraculous. And uh, 
the next day they throng him again and they want the free food and everything that goes with it. And instead, he gives a discourse that is jarring, shocking, repulsive. It just doesn't make any sense. We try to make it make sense. We say, well, he's talking about sacrament. and Okay, fine. But, but what's really going on there, it seems to me, is he's intentionally um, telling people things that don't make sense. Unless you eat my body, drink my blood, you have no part with me. He, he, he gives this discourse to them in a way that causes most of them to leave, right? And at the end, there are just a few people left. And he turns to them and pretty pointedly says, what about you? That's actually the way some translations say it. What about you? Are you also going away? And Peter and the others say, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Well, Jesus Christ is the answer for me. That's, I've never been, I don't mean to put myself in the same uh, category as people who've really, really struggled with their faith or with being betrayed and so forth. I have empathy for them, but I really don't. Uh, know from my own experience what that's like, right? I've I've tasted it in small doses by comparison. Um, so I'm not trying to uh, know, but Christ knows. He knows that. And I guess what I mean to say is that he's always the way. He's always the truth. And whenever I come up against something in the church that I I wish was different or um, in church history that is hard or whatever else. I, I think of the bread of life discourse. Or, will you also go away? I can't. I don't want to because Jesus has the words of eternal life. And I'm convinced that this is his restored gospel. I, I also sometimes say it this way. The church is of two things. It is of Jesus Christ, and it is of Latter-day Saints. Well, Latter-day Saints are flawed, broken people who hurt each other all the time, help each other all the time too, right? In beautiful, wonderful ways, but, but hurt each other and, uh, and do mean things and have said uh, rotten things and have, um, you know, you know what I mean. So what's the church of? It's of that. It's of the pain and suffering and the trouble and the heartache and the humanness and the wickedness. Uh, the Lord puts it in section 101 of the doctrine comes the strife, the covetousness, the jealousies, right? That's what the church is of. And it's also of Jesus Christ. So anybody who's going to stick with the church, well, they're going to get both of those things. They're going to get the church of Jesus Christ, of Latter-day Saints. And if they and I will choose to accept that charitably and say, I'm one of those people. I'm one of those fallen saints. And if they'll do what you're doing and say, what can I do? Instead of saying, what's the church done for me lately, right? Ask not what the church has done for you, but what you can do for the church, right? You, you're just saying... 
uh, you and Leo uh, and others, you're saying, what, what, how, how can I be part of the solution? How can I help people who uh, feel similar, uh, who, who've had other experiences like mine? That's the way forward, right? Don't, don't be passive waiting for the church to solve its problems and fix all the issues. Jump in. Minister. Be in the church of Jesus Christ, of Latter-day Saints. And therefore, expect it to be a broken, human, uh, troubled institution led by the Lord Jesus Christ, who's coming again soon. And it seems like it all comes back to if you're going to accept it's of Jesus Christ and of Latter-day Saints. Uh, I feel like it comes back to your answer before charity, having charity, charity, choosing charity. And it's never what he did choice. Yeah. Which is what he did. Right. He, he, can you imagine how exasperating it might be to be him? I can't. Uh, I feel like I'm shivering thinking about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, like you, you were saying a bit ago, I can't drive down the freeway without, you know, condescending, uh, to, to mere mortals and telling them how awful they are. Uh, so here's the risen Christ who, who must, on some sort of infinitely exponential level, feel that exasperated way about me and about the rest of us. And he chooses not to go off like that. He chooses not to um, be hypercritical of people the way we might or to blame uh, the way we might. He chooses to take us where we're at and get us where he, he knows we can go just as fast as we're willing to follow him there. And he calls us to that same work. He calls us to have charity the same way he has charity for us. So I think that the church of Jesus Christ, of Latter-day Saints, as Elder Cornish has said, is not perfect. No claim that it's perfect in the scriptures. It's for perfecting saints. It's for making us better. And it's pretty good at that, in part because of how broken it is and how much it needs us to help fix it. Choice. I, I loved how you said how G, we can choose, but Jesus chooses. He has the choice too. He and chooses he us. Chooses us all the time. He could wash his hands of us, but instead he's engraving us wow. on the palms of his hands. Jesus is the answer. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for coming on the podcast. And thanks to our viewers and our listeners for tuning in. And we'll see you again next time. This is a Saints Unscripted original podcast and is hosted and executive produced by me, Jacob Watson, and Saints Unscripted. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>